The text this morning comes from Acts 26, 19 through 23, and that's um, page 935 in your pew Bible. Um, will you stand for the reading of God's word? Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying, both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to raise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. You may be seated. felt like today might be a good day to make a confession. In the ninth grade, I hated geometry. There, I said it. I'm not sorry. I did. I hated geometry. I don't know why you have Algebra 1, then geometry. Why don't you have Algebra 1, then Algebra 2? But, yeah. I mean, what, 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 I mean it's not the same. And so my brain was wired for algebra, and, and I got into geometry, and I, I just didn't get what was happening there. And so I just, I just couldn't figure out geometry. And it's possible that one reason, maybe one of the reasons I didn't like geometry is because I didn't study. I mean, I don't know if that was a contributing factor. But then I had a teacher who gave the grades back, the test grades back, in order, in order from highest to lowest. So all the 30 students there, and she's handing out the test papers, and your buddy just got his, and it's a 72. Mm. And you don't have yours yet. <laughs> now, that happened to me many times in the ninth grade, but, but I think what I, I really didn't get about geometry is what were called proofs. Do any of you remember this? You'd have some geometric form and then some columns. You're supposed to put postulates or theorems or I don't know what you, you're supposed to put something in those things. And at the end, you're supposed to see, see there it's true. For instance, at the top of your paper might be a triangle. And I would wisely say, as my proof, I can see. That was number one. Number two, I looked at the paper and saw the image on the paper. Number three, it has three sides. Number four, it's a triangle. That was my proof. And that didn't really go over too well on the grading system. But I just couldn't quite figure that part out. But, but the word proof, I was thinking about that. The word proof is a word you often hear associated with Easter. That's a word that's going to be given from many pulpits this Sunday morning. Like, like, for instance, the empty tomb is proof that Jesus is the Messiah and that he conquered death. 
Are we sure Jesus is who, who he said he was? How can you be absolutely sure? People have done all kinds of amazing things. It's because, because he came back from the dead. The, the tomb was empty. Or in a common text used for Easter, John chapter 20, verse 25, where you have Jesus who's appeared to the disciples minus one, Thomas. And so what is Thomas looking for? He, he's not going to really rely on the testimony of the disciples. He needs proof. He needs to put his hand in the nail-scarred hands. He needs to put his hand on the side where the spear pierced Jesus' side. He's, he's looking for some kind of physical proof. Or you might hear on an Easter Sunday, because we live in a culture where almost anything is acceptable and almost anything can be believed except the Bible. Easter is an opportunity to give proof for the resurrection, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But I, I wanted to tell you, just on a side note, recently I listened to an interview about a new movie that's, I don't know, maybe it's come out, it's coming out. Uh, the, the movie's off a book called Heaven is for Real. You, I'm sure you've heard of this. The four-year-old boy who had some kind of experience, kind of an out-of-body experience, he died, came back to life, and then he begins to tell these stories to his dad who writes it down in a book. And in the interviews, the, the interviewer was interviewing somebody that had something to do with the book or the film. And sort of the closing remarks by the interviewer was, who says she's a Christian, well, it brings assurance. And as I listened to that, I thought, it brings assurance. This, this little boy's testimony brings assurance. It brings assurance that the Bible is true. It brings assurance that heaven is for real. And I don't know what she meant, but this is what it sort of sounded like to me. I'm not sure about the scriptures, but thankfully we have this little boy's testimony. This isn't rock solid. We need something to sort of get up underneath the scriptures to say, okay, well, okay, now I believe because I've got this testimony from this four-year-old boy. Whether it's true or not, I'm not trying to make that point. The point I'm trying to make is that so much, so much energy is expended in our society trying to base your life on something other than the scriptures. Trying to find some assurance, trying to find something that would sort of shore up the Bible. Because we can't always be sure that it's true. And of course, this happens in, in not just books and movies, but several years ago, I attended at a funeral at a church here in town. And the place was packed. This guy was a community guy and he had died of cancer and lots of friends, obviously the family sitting on the front row. They're, they're looking for assurance. They're looking for hope. They're looking for some word from the preacher and the preacher gets up and I think, gosh, this what an opportunity. This man was a Christian and you're, you're going to just be able to it's a softball to say, hey, let's talk about Jesus and the resurrection. And that even though we have tears now, the, 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 the feet of sin, the, the sting of death has, has lost its bitter power because we know that Christ came out of the tomb. Just something like that. But that's not what he said. Instead, he told us a story about a true story about a time that he was a hospital, hospital chaplain. 
And while he was a hospital chaplain, he was in a, in a uh, room in the hospital and a man died in his bed and they resuscitated him. But it was several minutes that he was technically dead and the man himself had some kind of out-of-body experience. And then he came back and he told this hospital chaplain, now pastor, about his experience. And so that was the hope this pastor delivered at that funeral. That I know a man who had an out-of-body experience, and therefore we know that there's life after death. And I wanted to stand up. It was all I could do not to stand up and go, you're missing it. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about somebody else's experience. It's about the Bible. It's about what the Bible has to say. It's about the fact that Jesus came out of the tomb and he's leading captives through that tomb into heaven. Just say something like that. Please, preacher. And I exercise self-control at that moment. Not to say that in the middle of the funeral service. But what I'm saying is that so often you're looking for something to undergird what is the truth. Well, sometimes some thought about the resurrection and some proofs may prove to be helpful in some way. So let me just give you what are five common proofs that are given about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Number one, uh, the empty tomb. That would be the most obvious one. Here you have the, the, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire who will eventually be overtaken by Christianity in 300 years. They have all the power, all the resources, all the motivation to make sure that we kind of squash Christianity right at its very beginning. And then, of course, you have the Jewish leaders, the teachers, the preachers that, that are wanting to squash this whole movement. And so they have all kinds of power and motivation. It's just one little problem. They couldn't find, they just couldn't find a body. And if they just could have produced a body, then it's over. But they couldn't, and that's because the body was resurrected. Number two, the physical appearance of Jesus to over 500 people at one time. You know, if he just appeared to one person... Well, that person, who knows, could have some kind of a hallucination, could have been dreaming. Could have, I mean, there's lots of things, but, but collectively, you don't have a collective hallucination with over 500 people at the same point. Number three, the, the transformation of the disciples is often given as proof of the resurrection. Here you have the, the, the fearful disciples turning into the fearless disciples. Let's just take one, for example, the Apostle Peter. Here's the Apostle Peter. He's spent three years with Jesus. He alone got to walk on the water. He himself watched Jesus raise people from the dead. He was one of three men who got to stand on the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. This man has an incredible uh, spiritual resume. And he has all that weight, except that when Jesus is, is, being, uh, is being tried, what is Peter doing? I never knew. And who's he denying Jesus to? Probably a 12-year-old servant girl. 
So this man with his great spiritual resume, who's done things, any, any one of these things we would have happy to have on a resume that you think would give courage, that you think would give strength, it doesn't do that. But then Peter in Acts chapter 4, he's standing before the authorities with the rest of the disciples. And he's saying salvation is found in no one else. Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. But we can't help but speak of what we've heard. We just can't help it. And so this fearful disciple is transformed into a, a fearsome disciple. And it's because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Number four. The first witnesses to the resurrection were women. That's often a proof that's given to this record that we know as the Gospels. Why? Well, in the first century, women weren't allowed to give testimony in a court of law. They just couldn't be trusted in, in the mindset back then. So if you were going to make up some story like the resurrection, it really didn't happen, you hallucinated it, or you sort of wanted to see it happen in some way, and you're going to plant sort of this myth or this information out there that hopefully would spread. The, the last people you would make as the first witnesses, as the first disciples, so to speak, as the first evangelists, the last group you would choose would be women. But isn't it, doesn't it just go with the Gospels that Jesus would pick the people that the world consider last to be first. Number five, this is my last one of, a, of common proofs for the resurrection of Christ. Number five, the death of the disciples. Not just in manner, but in isolation. The manner in which the, these men were killed. Very gruesome manner, crucifixion for some, beheading, stoning, spear thrust, die by the sword. So any, any of those would be enough to say, oh, I don't know if this was really true. I think I was hallucinating at that moment, right as you're, you're about ready to be stoned. But not just the manner, but the isolation. You see, it wasn't what well, the Bible doesn't recall for us or count for us a story of 12 men who were in a house uh, believing that what they'd seen was true. And, and a group of people gather around the house saying, you tell us it's not true. We're going to burn the house down. And in some sort of misguided, uh, heroic idea, the disciples were like, no, we believe it's true. And they burn the house down and everybody dies. That's not what happens. What happens is that these men scattered across the, the world, Syria, India, Egypt, Greece, Italy, and every one of them dies alone. No person saying, come on, be strong. Remember what we were telling everybody? No, just alone. And not one of them said on that lonely trail to their death said, Hey, we made it up. Why? Because they saw the resurrected Christ. They didn't need a group of people. They, they knew Jesus was alive. And so the death of the disciples, <coughs> both in manner and in isolation, is often given as a proof. Well, these proofs, and there are others, have their place. But what I find absolutely fascinating 
is what the disciples and even Jesus primarily use for proof of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. What I find most interesting is when you look at the Bible and Jesus is trying to give proof, or the disciples are trying to give proof, not exclusively, but most often they rely on the Old Testament Scriptures. They want to go back to what God said and say, hey, God said something. He's done something. And we can see through the Old Testament scriptures and we can see Christ. Let me just give you a couple of examples. You remember in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells this parable about a rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man had everything he wanted. And Lazarus, the poor man, didn't have very much, just kind of crumbs. But they both die. And the rich man, he goes to hell. And the poor man, Lazarus, he goes to heaven. And the rich man is sort of looking into heaven in the parable. And he sees Lazarus. And he's talking to Abraham, Father Abraham. And he's first asking for some kind of relief and Then finally, he says to Abraham, I beg you, Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him let let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. See, see, I've got five brothers. I don't want them to come back. I don't want them to come down here. They're heading in that direction. If you could raise Lazarus from the dead and send Lazarus back then maybe they would listen to him. And listen to Abraham's reply in the parable, which is really Jesus telling this parable. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Hmm. They don't need a, a dead man to come back. They have the scriptures. And the scriptures are sufficient for salvation. <laughs> I love the man's response. No, that's not going to work. I mean, the, the, the rich man's still giving orders like he's in charge. Hey, Abraham, hey, that's a good idea, but that one's not going to work. Let me tell you what's really going to work. If you'd send Lazarus, and Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll never be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Isn't that incredible? Here's Jesus himself saying, here's what you can trust, the scriptures. And if you can't trust the scriptures, then no matter what happens, you're not going to be able to believe it. Similarly, Luke chapter 24, two disciples after the crucifixion and after the resurrection. They haven't really seen Jesus and they're heading out of town of Jerusalem. And they're going to this little town nearby called Emmaus. So they're on the road to Emmaus. And as they walk along, a third figure comes up, which we learn to be Jesus, but they don't recognize him right away. And they're having this conversation and they say to Jesus, we had hoped he was the one. We had our, all our hopes. So we had all of our for Easter. We have all of our eggs in one basket. But he's been crucified. Yet some women have come and told us something amazing. They went to the tomb early this morning and they didn't find the body. And they came back and told us they'd seen a vision of the angels. And the angels had said that Jesus was alive. alive. And so two of our companions, which we know as Peter and John, raced down to the tomb. And they came back and said, well, we didn't see Jesus, but the tomb is empty. 
But these two disciples, they're on the road to Emmaus and they don't believe the eyewitness testimony of Mary. Or the women. They don't believe the testimony of the angels. They don't believe the testimony of Peter and John. And so if you're Jesus at this point, what would you think you would do? They're not believing these things that people have said. So what would you do to give absolute proof that you've risen from the dead? Well, you wouldn't you think it would be just like Thomas? Okay, guys. I'm Jesus. Put your hands. I mean, it seems so automatic that you would say, yes, just give them this physical proof. But amazingly, that is not what Jesus does. He looks at him and says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. You're so foolish and slow of heart that you didn't believe. And what do you think he's going to say? You didn't believe the women's testimony, guys. No, that's not what he says. You didn't believe the angel's testimony. No, he didn't say that. You didn't believe Peter and John's testimony. No, he doesn't say that. You're so foolish and slow of heart to believe, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then when Jesus could have given physical proof, instead of giving physical proof, he gives scriptural proof. And, he, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains what was said to them, to said in all the scriptures about himself. Isn't that amazing? I find that fascinating. If I'm the resurrected Jesus, I'm going to give the physical proof. But what does he say? Let's go back to what God said. Why? Because you can always rely on what God said. Aren't you glad he did that? Because you and I can't produce the physical body right now. But we can produce the scriptures. And so Jesus is always taking people back and saying, see, it's, I'm back here. I'm back here as a shadow. I'm back here as a type. And you can see me. And when you see that, that you know that happened, then you'll be able to see I'm the real thing. I, I'm true. And of course, that's what Paul does in Acts 26. Now, I've been trying this. That's all introductory just to get me to our text this morning. And you're thinking, oh, it's going to be a long sermon. He just got to his text. But let's let's go back to see what Acts 26 is happening. Paul is on trial. And if you look back in 25, verse 23, Acts 25, 23, uh, on the next day, this trial is going to begin. Uh, Agrippa and Bernice, the king and the queen, they come into this great hall with great pomp and circumstance. And, and they enter in a, the, the audience hall and the military generals are coming in behind them. And then the prominent men of the city are coming in. And then Festus, who's the governor, he's coming in. So we're filling up the hall. All the front row sort of VIP seating is being taken by all these people. And then we sort of have the gallery, the people that don't have a name. The great people up front, small people in the back. And then, then comes in Paul. And he's going to give a testimony about what he's been talking about. And then you'll see what proof he gives that what he's been saying is true. Acts 26, 22. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here and I'm testifying both to the small 
You people in the back and to the great. And I'm saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. See, you guys know about this, and I'm just telling you that what they said is going to come to pass has come to pass in the person of Christ, that he must suffer, and that by being the first one to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light and life both to the people and to the Gentiles. Do you see what Paul's doing? Guys, you you want proof? Let's just go back to the Scriptures. Let's just stand on the Scriptures. Because we always know the Scriptures are going to be sufficient in everything. And so Paul does that. And my question then is when Jesus is doing that in Luke and other places, when the Apostle Peter does it, when Paul does it here, my question is, what do they point back to? They're pointing back to the Scriptures, but, but how do you see Christ in the Old Testament? And of course, that could be answered a thousand ways. But let me just help you. you. You walk with me through the story of the Exodus, and you just see how Christ is in this picture that they know is true, and that Jesus is saying, if you can see that, you should be able to see me. You should be able to trust that what I'm saying is true. Number one. In Egypt, God's people are in hopeless slavery. And they were powerless to deliver themselves. They're stuck in Egypt. They're this minority group. They're enslaved. They have no way of getting out of slavery by themselves. They need some kind of outside help. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says this, I'm sold as a slave to sin. See, I'm in slavery. I'm in a bondage and I cannot rescue myself. I've got to have some kind of outside help. And what does Paul say? I find this law at work at me. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. What a wretched man I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Well, the people in the in their misery, they cry out to God. They know they need this outside help and then In the Exodus, this is how God responds to their prayer. I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them cry out. I am concerned about the suffering. So I have decided to come down. I see this rescue that needs to happen. And there's only one way the rescue can happen. I've decided to come down. Myself and rescue. And of course, when he comes, he has a mediator, Moses. And Moses is talking, remember, to to God in the burning bush. And Moses says, you know, when I go there, they're going to say, well, who sent you? And God says, I am Yahweh. Just say Yahweh. Just say, I am sent me. Fifteen hundred years later, a man named Emmanuel, which means... God with us. He comes up on the scene. And this is what he says. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. Well, it's not going to be an easy task to free God's people. To to pry them loose from the the grip of Pharaoh to pry them out of this slavery is going to take some incredible event. 
And the last of the plagues was the event that finally let them free. And you remember what that last plague was, the plague of death. And how could you avoid death? What did you need to do? You had to take an innocent lamb, one without blemish. And you had to put that lamb to death and you had to apply the lamb's blood over your life, over the doorway to your home. And so that when death came, death would pass over you and your family. John the Baptist in John chapter one sees Jesus and he says, look, behold. The lamb. The lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We know that salvation of God's people from Egypt is by grace alone. How do we know that? Well, in Exodus chapter 14, the people of God have finally sort of got been let go and they're they're sort of running out of Egypt now. And they but they come to this natural barrier, the Red Sea. And while they're sort of standing there and trying to, I guess, navigate, well, what are we supposed to do here? Pharaoh changes his mind. And he starts coming after them, sort of behind them. So they're pinned in They're in between the Red Sea and they can't get through that. And they can't go back because they got Egypt's uh, army on their heels. And so this is what the people of God said to Moses. The Israelites looked up. They were terrified and said, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Didn't we say to you, leave us alone? We'd rather serve the Egyptians. Now, if you were Moses, <laughs> what would you want to do? Okay. I mean, head on back, guys. I'm done. That's that maybe what I was. I wouldn't have been a good leader at this point. But that's not what Moses says. Moses says, don't be afraid. Stand firm. You're going to see the deliverance of the Lord. The Egyptians you see today, will ne you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. Only you've got to be still. See, salvation is by grace alone. In order for them to get all the way out of Egypt, not one Israelite raised one sword to fight their way out. God got them all the way out on his power alone so that there'd be no mistaking when they were across and into the promised land who actually got them there. It wasn't by their works. It was by God's works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works. So no one can boast. Don't you see? What the apostle is doing is see what Jesus does when he says, I'm just telling you what Moses and the prophets have been saying. If you can see that historically, then you can see this. I want you to go back and say the proof is in the scriptures. <clears throat> Everything has been pointing towards Christ and you've seen it before. Just open your eyes to see that he's the, the reality of the shadow that's cast in the Old Testament. Now, following the Exodus, then this is important sort of end note. God provides the law. After salvation, God provides the law. These people don't know how to live for God, so he provides a law and says, this is the way you're supposed to live and uh, live a holy life before me. It's 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 salvation and then obedience. Aren't you glad it's not obedience and then salvation? 
<laughs> hey, I'm going to give you these Ten Commandments, and I'm going to give you a little trial run. And if you can keep these ten, then, you know, I might save you. Man, I'm so glad he didn't do that. He saves by grace alone. He's put his affection on his people and says, I'm going to get you all the way out. Then once you're out, I'm going to give you some instruction on how you should be living your life. And it's important to keep these two things in order, because if you get them out of order, if obedience precedes salvation, if law comes before love, then instead of an evangelist, you become a legalist. You're not giving news as an evangelist would. You're giving a list. Your motivation for obedience would be driven by fear rather than love or or your religion becomes self-centered in some way because you obey in order to get good things that you want. I'm doing this so I can get something from God instead of I'm doing something because because I love God. If you reverse the order, Christianity changes into religion. See, it's the gospel in the Old Testament and the New Testament that says that I'm saved by the blood of the Lamb of God who has conquered death, who has promises eternal life, who is going to get me into the promised land. Well, Paul is finishing up his speech. And I don't think he's quite done. But he gets to the end of this uh, place in verse 23. And it says, as he's saying these things, as he's, he's unpacking this Old Testament truth, Festus, the governor, notice what he says. You're out of your mind. I mean, come on. You know, when you stand and proclaim the gospel, some people are going to say that. You believe in a guy who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago? Yeah, I do. And some people are going to say, I think you've lost your mind. But Paul, I love Paul's insistence. I'm not out of my mind. <laughs> Most excellent Festus. That's a great way to say it. Not you loser or something. That's what I, what I said. I'm speaking the truth in rational words. Verse 26. For the king. Now I'm, I'm focused now on Agrippa. For the king knows these things. And I'm speaking to him boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice. He knows this Old Testament history. He's seen all these signals. He's seen this shadow. Nothing's, been, nothing's happening in a corner. He knows it, and he's standing there, and he's saying, Agrippa, do you believe? And that's what I'm asking today. Boldly. This is what I believe. I'm not saying there aren't some strange testimony out there that you go, okay. But I don't believe, this is what I believe. This is what I'm living my life on. And it's coming out of a history, and all of history is pointing to Jesus. And Paul, with great courage, in this incredible venue, he's looking and he's asking, is that what you believe? It's reasonable. It's rational. I'm not out of my mind. And that's the question where we're left with today. Jesus Christ came. He died. He conquered death. 
And he is bringing people to himself by the millions. Do you believe? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we'd be lost without your word. We would like a patchwork quilt. We'd put together a bunch of words. Words my my professor said. Words that I heard on television. Words that my mom told me. Words that I made up. Words from a book. And we just have this theology of just a bunch of different words. But you've given us the word. The word that became truth. The word that came to dwell among us. The word that fulfills all the Old Testament history so that you could look back and say, yes, this is the Christ. And it's so strong, so true that even if we died alone, we would die assured of the resurrection and the hope that we have in Jesus name. Amen.